It's not about hoping somebody forgets their subscription is going to renew and, and you capture another month out of them. It's about building so much value they'll never leave and they'll never want to cancel. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Adam Levinter. Are you utilizing all the tools and resources available to you in order to grow your business? Maybe you're waiting to learn about the industry events near you that can help you reach your goals. For subscription economy leader Paul Chambers, creating the Subscription Summit, the first and only conference devoted to those who work within the direct-to-consumer subscription industry, was a complete no-brainer. Paul is the CEO and co-founder of the Subscription Trade Association, Subta. He's also the co-founder and CMO of Capsiva, a rapidly growing CPG pain relief product on top of a number of other things he's doing, including being the CEO and founder of Core3 Solutions, the parent and holding company for Element 5 Digital, Mocha Boca, Rocket Effect, and Gentleman's Box. Paul has been starting and scaling and selling companies on Shopify's platform for years. He's here now to share strategies and tools for subscriptions and detail how your business can benefit from implementing a subscription model. Paul, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. We've spoken to a lot of businesses on this show where the founders have years of entrepreneurial experience, some dating back to college. But yours is interesting because your entrepreneurial experience dates all the way back to the fifth grade. Yeah. So let's just go back there for one moment. What was that business back in fifth grade that you were running? I was selling tongue splashers. They're these candy little uh, like gumballs that painted your mouth a color when you ate them. So you sold a blue gumball. Everybody would have a blue mouth after that. And, and it was fun because it came in these paint cans. And I would have all these empty like paint cans afterwards. Very interesting. And over the years, you continue to have these big entrepreneurial ventures. You go to undergrad at Michigan State. And if I recall, you didn't really want to go to university, but you stuck it out. You sort of knew early on that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Is that right? Yeah, I started my business, my first business when I was in high school. And the first business I, I set out to build was an absolute failure. I borrowed $10,000 from my grandparents because I wanted to build an internet service provider. So we all remember those good old days of the ISPs and dial-up internet. And I built a business model, proved to my grandfather that it could work. And that was my very first recurring revenue business, actually, and failed miserably. Bought all the wrong equipment, didn't know what I was doing, so started building websites from there. And I had built a nice business, and I didn't want to go to college. I got into Michigan State, and I wanted to keep building the business. And my mom said, all of my kids will have college degrees. And I was like, oh, that's awfully scary, the way she presented that. But I went because she made that demand. And I always tell everybody I started for my mother, but I finished for myself. And it was extremely valuable going to Michigan State. Mm -hmm. Any regrets looking back or all good things from there? So what's interesting is I, you'll hear me remark from time to time, I don't live life with regrets. I only look back and find ways I want to make improvements or changes. I've been through an awful lot. Just as I set off to Michigan State, my father died in a plane crash and completely changed the course of my time there. And I took over his business at the time and had a, a lot of things going on in my life and pushed through. Graduated college, had you know a bunch of other businesses that probably shouldn't have started but did. But those all shaped me for who I was and mm -hmm. who I am today. And so yeah, not one, not one bit of regret because everything's, everything builds on top of the next thing. 
And your father was a physician, but also an entrepreneur as well. Is that right? Yeah, he, he was a leading hair transplant restoration in the United States, hair restoration doctor. And he came from Greece when he was 18 with $100 in his pocket, put himself through medical school with a Fulbright scholarship and some loans, and learned the technique of hair transplants and built a, a patented technique that he eventually went on to build 16 offices worldwide. And, you know, it was only his passing that that stopped the business, but he had a great, great success with what he was doing. He's on Oprah and Donahue and Geraldo back in the day. And I remember coming home from school one day and seeing my dad on Oprah. That was a very interesting phenomena. But uh, I learned a lot from him in terms of like the hustle mentality. Mm-hmm. Because if anybody, if he can come to this country on a boat with $100 in his pocket and build a business the way he did, anything's possible. There should be nothing stopping from me from building a successful business if he could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like that you had an alternative path at all after college? Or for you, was entrepreneurship really it? Entrepreneurship was always it. <laughs> when I was younger, friends and my parents and different people would ask me what I want to be when I grow up. And jokingly, the answer was always rich. <laughs> I didn't really realize what you know that meant at the time. And that's not the, the same answer today. The answer today is just to you know, feel, be happy and fulfilled. And I've got four kids now and that changes a lot of things. But um, I always knew I wanted to run my own business. You know, in, in elementary school, I started selling candy. And in high school, I started selling keychains and then building the internet service provider and just always found ways to hustle things out and to get there with it. I've had so many different, my father was a big influence, but so was my grandfather, so was my stepfather. My mother always kept me grounded. Um, and so those things really helped kind of lead me down that path of, of building businesses. Mm-hmm. So how many businesses today are you a founder of? And the second part of this question is how many of these businesses are still in operation? There's been many adventures and I would never call anything a failure because again, they're like lessons learned. And so they're definitely adventures, but you know, two dozen probably businesses over the course of time, everything from a chain of gourmet popcorn stores around Metro Detroit here. At one point I had five or six retail locations between malls and Main Street down to, you know, most recently invested in a, a pizza robot. My main my main focus, and I've had a marketing agency I've helped put my eyes and ears into for the past 25 years, and that's what the internet service provider business scaled into. But where my most of my time goes today in build, is building SubSummit, our, our conference for consumer subscription companies. Do you have a filter by which you decide how many businesses you want to be involved in at any given time? And how do you split time over the course of a day or or a week in terms of all of these companies, these investments that you've made? The largest reason why I'm able to, for the most part, is is just amazing teams amongst all the organizations. Um, And I'm able to come in, lend my knowledge and expertise and share the things that are important to me and where I want to see us going. And the team takes that vision and runs with it. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, two years ago, I said to my brother who works um, with us here over at SubSummit, I said, you know, I would love to walk into the studio, record a podcast, and walk out and the rest happens from there. And the rest being... It's saved down to the proper files and folders. It is cut up into shorts we put across social media. It gets posted on my social media on my behalf. And in the beginning, I had to help with a lot of it and help do it all. And now I'm so blessed and so lucky that 
that happens. And a lot of it is, is conveying to the team what we want to see and where we want to go. And I've you know, got Alex and Bradley sitting in here with me right now, making sure when I walk in, the audio board's ready, the mics are tuned perfectly, and recording and everything else happens. Uh, and same thing, you know, I've got an amazing team over at Zabot and Element 5 and Capsiva, all those different brands that we're running. I'm able to kind of lend my knowledge and expertise, and the team takes it from there. I'm joined by Paul Chambers, a subscription economy leader and the co-founder of SubSummit. Hope you're enjoying our conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review or feedback. For the show, it certainly helps our audience to find us. Paul, let's jump right into what you're doing now and the origins of the Subscription Trade Association, which dates all the way back to 2016. So we were running Gentleman's Box at the time, which was a subscription commerce brand for, we would say, can make any man into a true gentleman. It was a monthly subscription box of ties, pocket squares. It would give you a whole ensemble every single month that would up your, up your style game, we would say. And that started when Chris and, and John, my co-founders here at Subtun Subsummit, had an idea for it. They brought it to my marketing agency, and we decided we'd build it out in exchange for uh, equity in the company. Um, about 2016, it was the summer of 2016, we were talking about attending a conference as Gentleman's Box. And Chris and John were telling me about, it was a, kind of an e-com conference and they were going to meet these other people. And I was like, guys, we should find a subscription conference to go to. That's where we want to meet. We, we need to, we need, we want to learn more. We wanted to absorb knowledge from amazing people around us. And some super intense Googling and it didn't exist. And you know the entrepreneur mindset. When something doesn't exist, you're like, oh, well, I should just build that. That sounds easy. Turns out <laughs> running a conference is one of the most difficult businesses I've ever built. And um, it's, I refer to it as like a wedding on steroids. Everybody has, you want everybody to be happy from the speakers to the sponsors to the attendees. You want to create an amazing experience for everybody. But we did it. We gave ourselves three months runway. We wanted to hold the first one in Detroit. So we called 200 of our best friends and you know hustled it out, reached out to people. And we were able to, within three months, build a conference with over slightly over 200 attendees. FedEx wrote us a sponsorship check among a couple others. And we did it. And we held the first event. And we're like, wow, that was awesome. I and mean, we didn't expect to make any money, by the way. We were expecting to break even. And we made a couple bucks. We're like, oh, this is cool. But most of all, we accomplished our goal of learning from others. I remember sitting there with Michael Burkeen from FabFitFun, and he's like, guys, like, you know, he gave us a couple of tips, and we applied those to our business immediately and saw immediate ROI with what we were doing. So the conference just, you know, kind of took on a life of its own from there and continued to grow and scale. But you, John, and Chris are still running Gentleman's Box simultaneously, right? This is pre-acquisition how do you decide mm -hmm. that you want to take SUPTA forward? How do you decide that you want to sell Gentleman's Box? Well, so we started to see the potential with the conference and where we were going. Um, and the conference is super fulfilling because the connections, see the conversations we had come out of it. I remember a very large streaming provider coming up to us and saying, I learned something from the underwear subscription talk that we took back and applied to our business that had a six-figure impact on our bottom line. Like, wow. First of all, like streaming and underwear subscriptions, two totally different worlds, but they were able to learn something from each other. And we're like, 
this is so cool and this is so fulfilling. And the biggest part for me, I, I feel like life is too short to just come here, work a job, sleep, eat, sleep, just have routine and rinse and repeat and not have an impact. I really want to be able to make an impact on people's lives as much as possible. And there's a way through that with SubSummit. If we can improve a company's vision on customer service, they can then take that and put that out there and it can impact hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. I remember the day going over to my grandmother's house and her being in tears because the Comcast rep forgot to put her on hold and had said to his buddy, I'm going to give this woman a discount because she's probably going to be dead soon anyway. And that to me has resonated in my entire life. Like, wow, if we could fix Comcast customer care issue in their team and teach them better principles about just how better retention or better pricing or just anything in there, we could have an impact upon millions of people's lives. And so that was an obvious reason to move forward at the conference. So along the way in 2019, we found a happy home for Gentleman's Box with Cigar Club. Mm -hmm. uh, they were able to finish the acquisition in 2020. That's allowed us to fully focus on building an amazing event. Yeah, it's interesting. The evolution of this thing is is remarkable. I was at that first version of Subscription <laughs> Summit back in Detroit in 2016. I got to say it was super raw, uh, a little a little disorganized, but the speaker lineup was incredible. I mean, you guys had Katya Beauchamp from Birchbox. You had the Fit Fab Fun guys, as you've mentioned. I mean, the stage setup was really poor. The lighting wasn't good, but nobody really cared because of the quality of the people in the room. And today you guys have carried that forward so well. It's just become a lot more professional in 2023. I mean, Adam, I remember like we had our first speaker up on stage and I, I look at the stage and I'm like, something doesn't look right. And we didn't have a, a backdrop. There's no back curtain on the stage. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to fix this. So in between one of the breaks, we were adding back curtains up there, you know, drapery and the lighting there was done by like the people who had done lighting at my wedding. I just had to call on them. I'd never run an event before, so I had no idea. And we figured it out. And, you know, here we are today. We'll be over 2,000 attendees at this year's sub-summit and super excited for, and, and so fortunate for how far it's come. Yeah, um, and you consistently deliver great content leading up to the summit. Folks can read your research online. You guys publish newsletters and, and incredible market research um, on the subscription economy, trends, other analytics and metrics regarding the industry. When you look forward into 2023, what are some of the key trends that you're seeing in the subscription economy that are worth mentioning? Yeah, so... Um, you'll hear my business partner, Chris George, mention a lot, uh, 2023 years, the year of retention. Um, and we lean into that a lot too with the theme at our event in, of engage and rich. And the biggest things that we're encouraging brands to do and what we see brands doing is uh, along those lines. Find ways to continue to engage your customers, your subscribers, um, you know, even those that haven't purchased from you. And then enrich those relationships, enrich the offering, enrich the product, because you need to find ways to continue to, to tap into that current market or if you're a subscription brand, keep them on longer. And what we, what we really try and talk about a lot is it's not about hoping somebody forgets their subscription is going to renew and, and you capture another month out of them. It's about building so much value they'll never leave. 
and they'll never want to cancel. If somebody is getting too much, like we get chewy dog food at my house uh, for mm-hmm. our dog on the subscribe and save. And I have a little bit of anxiety because I'm worried it's going to show up at the wrong time. But this month, my wife goes, um, you know, hey, when the we're getting low on dog food, when's it going to show up? And I go in to like check the shipment data. I was like, oh, it's on its way. And after a couple times, Chewy's figured out the frequency and now it's arriving right at the right time. And they know at like the pace at which our dogs through and they use probably AI, the algorithm, whatever it is there that's driving um, that way to, to get it there. And so that's smart e-commerce, right? That's delivering value. So you mentioned Chewy. What other companies do you guys watch and who do you assume are sort of the leaders in this world of subscription? Yeah. Um, one of my favorites out there, and I, I call them the most polite subscription in the world because Please is in their name is Vinyl Me Please. They're a vinyl record subscription. And what's fun about them is uh, really they're more of a membership than anything. Um, they're really cool because they provide so much value in, in what they do in their approach. When they originally started, it was getting a new vinyl record every month, every quarter, whatever frequency it was that you selected. And over time, they kept layering in more and more value into what they're doing. And so now, you know, as a member, not only do you get a new vinyl print, you know, every month, but also you're getting access into exclusive limited runs that they do. If you go to shop in their store, you're getting member pricing that they offer there. And so they're really layering in so much there. And also they created a place where you can trade and exchange vinyl records. You can talk about uh, the records that you have. And so it it really is creating so much more there. So I really admire them. Um, And I had a fun talk with the CEO and founder of of Skin Tea recently. Skin Tea, Hmm. uh, they're collagen sparkling teas. I had to read from their website here. Um, and they, they provide a lot of health and wellness benefits to what they're doing. But she said so they're leaning, they're diving into retail more now, but they started with D to C, subscribe and save, and just direct to consumer. And what she learned from her consumers, and, and especially from her subscribers, is set the stage for them continuing to grow and scale. They're their most rabid fans, and they're constantly providing feedback. And there's so many lessons learned in there, and, and feedback that they've given that it helped them build their brand faster and smarter going forward. Uh, and so it's really fun to see, you know, then it's a great way to lean into that and understand how that data can help you build a stronger brand. Side note, we just actually finished a great episode with Matt Fiedler, the founder of Vinyl Me Please. You can check that episode out on Shopify Masters. Paul, I want to ask you about stats on the subscription economy. So there, there are so many different metrics uh, and stats that have been thrown out there. UBS did a study, I think two years ago, um, Juniper Research just did one that has the global subscription economy growing 22% annually through 2026. What are you guys seeing in terms of your team and the size and growth of the economy itself? Yeah, so we're seeing continued growth. And I think it's in so many different ways. Um, you know, Coming out of COVID, there was the quote unquote, great unsubscribe because I think, you know, you'd seen a lot of people subscribe to different things, whether it be um, Bippy or, you know, who gives a crap for toilet paper that they couldn't get at the time, um, or HelloFresh for meals. Um, and so as people started to get back into their previous routines and habits, they canceled those services. But I think there's a lot that that 
came out of that too, in terms of lessons learned and ways to approach things differently. I remember having a conversation with a fairly large fitness company, a, a gym company, and they talked about uh, being regulated in certain states to allowing people to cancel. Because a, a lot of the famous gym membership models will you know, sign up, you're locked in for 12 months, and uh, you can't cancel unless you move away from the closest one. But in California and New York, they're forced to allow people to cancel anytime. And what they discovered through that was people that canceled, let's say after one or two or three months, ended up coming back. But those that had to stay on for 12 months, they rarely saw them ever come back because they're so upset about being locked in and feeling trapped. And so now today, more and more of these, these gyms and, and fitness centers will offer cancel anytime. It's kind of the norm now, actually. You see Planet Fitness does that. Like, first month, you know, this, and cancel anytime, no obligation. And they learned by caring about your customer and, and respecting them just as much as they hopefully respect you, you build a more long-term relationship. And so I, I try not to you know, look at churn in a, a bad way. Churn is maybe a temporary thing sometimes. You know, giving people the ability to pause and, and move on. So coming back to your original question, we see that slowing down. There's an upper limit on the number of subscriptions people want and have in their lives. Truebill, which is now Rocket Money, shared on our stage last year that 16, 17 subscriptions is kind of what you're seeing the average consumer have. Some of our recent data suggesting, you know, 61% of consumers have between one and four subscriptions mm. uh, at least. And so... You know, you're going to start to see, you know, what's with all these streaming providers out there? How are people going to bundle and pull those together? Um, how are people going to manage the various different subscribe and save replenishments that they have? Um, so that's a lot of where the conversation is going right now. Do you think if interest rates and or inflation hang around for longer than anticipated, that we will continue to see more subscription fatigue? Or do you not think there's an impact there from a macro standpoint? It depends if oftentimes subscribe and save can save people money. And so you might see more of that happening because if they're going to the store to get something and the cost is going up there, but if they can subscribe and save and get it for a lower price point, maybe they will um, look at something like that more so than one-off purchases as a way to save money. Now, I don't think that's going to be a big driver there. But yeah, for discovery and delight, it very well could be. But that's where you have to just look at other ways to maximize that value of what you're giving to people. And then two, you know, looking at your subscribers as great resources as to insight into your product can be so valuable. There's a company that I'm close with and, you know, help advise called Capsiva. They're like a pain-relieving gel. Mm -hmm. And so the insight into those subscribe and save customers is out of all the purchases, how many are subscribing and saving, then how many are keeping renewing it? And that'll tell you how well that product is working, in my opinion. If it's if there's one-off purchases, it doesn't mean it means that it's not working well. But if more people are subscribing to it and continuing to get it more, okay, there's this product is working well and people are really liking it. And you can see how often they go through it and things like that. Mm -hmm. Historically, we've seen a lot of these consumer industries being focused in the world of subscriptions. So pets, food and beverage, uh, apparel. Now we're seeing a lot of movement in some other industries like education, automotive, 
travel. You know, we saw some announcements with Alaska Airlines this year. We've got innovative subscriptions happening from Taco Bell and Panera Bread. What other industries do you think are going to be moving into this space that aren't already in it? So that's interesting. So I looked up Taco Bell the other day to see what happened to their Taco Pass. They paused it for the moment. They were trialing it. I thought it was a, a good way because how well Panera's coffee subscription worked for me. Mm-hmm. And the frequency, when I had the coffee subscription, the frequency I went to Panera had significantly increased, not for coffee, but for other food. And it worked. And I actually saw an article recently that suggested how successful they've been with it in terms of um, kind of following the Amazon model. So they started incorporating other pieces into it. They have their coffee subscription. And oh, by the way, when you're a subscriber, you can also get free delivery on your food. And they'll keep layering them more, so they're delivering more value. On the opposite end of that, I, you know, I've had a, a conversation with Porsche the other day. I didn't realize they have a, a Porsche subscription. So from $2,100 to $3,200 a month, and you can change every month which one you're driving, you get to drive a Porsche. Now it's higher than going out and buying the car. But if you're considering getting one and you, you didn't know how it is, you can try them out and see what it's like. And they're finding great conversion into owners from there. Automotive is one of those like totally untapped spaces. Like I don't say untapped. General Motors has been running OnStar for a long time. Tesla has their membership of the autonomous driving, but also they're charging now. There's so many different ways to look at it. And that's what's fun about all these spaces too. It's not just you subscribe and you get something, you know, in the mail. It's it's so many different options. Yeah, I wonder if um, the actual viability and profitability of some of these subscriptions is actually the goal. For example, you know, you mentioned the whole taco subscription thing. <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like a lot of these announcements are really just moving the needle on brand awareness. And they feel like, look, this is something that's going to bring more traffic, more attention, more bodies into our our store, uh, to our point of sale. Why don't we just launch this? Whether or not these subscriptions are actually standalone successes, I'm not really sure. But I'm also curious to know if, you know, if you ask the CEO of these companies, say Alaska Airlines, is like, does this subscription need to be profitable as a standalone revenue channel? He or she might actually might actually say no. Um, That's not the goal. We're trying to do something else here. Yeah, and this was, you know, um, Volvo has a car subscription and Porsche has a car subscription. Two totally different subscriptions, but both getting you cars and driving you down that path of engaging with the brand and, and starting to um, have ownership of their vehicles. And so, you know, they're going to be, they're going to see different results in what they're doing. And, and I do think, like you said, some are awareness plays, some are driving people towards more. But like Panera's coffee subscription Coffee's, I don't want to say it's cheap anymore, but it costs them less than, well, less than what you're paying for the cup. So, you know, they figure 10 times in, but you buy a couple lunches and everything else. But it's the brand loyalty that it produces and that engagement and they're getting more feedback. And, you know, the other one I found really interesting recently is Delta. They made Wi-Fi free on flights. Mm-hmm. And they used to have a, a subscription and they still do for some flights. But then... I started to look at it and realize, okay, so in order to get into the free Wi-Fi in the flight, you have to have a Delta Sky Miles account. And you log in your Delta Sky Miles account, and now I'm a member for free, but a member of their their platform and their Sky Miles and a member and I'm building loyalty within them. And oh, I'm sure by the way, you know, everything I'm browsing while I'm on that flight, they're tracking, they're putting into their data feeds, and now they know way more about me than 
than ever before. And I think that's where sometimes we have to take a step back and realize like what's what other value can exist here in terms of again strengthening those relationships and and being more in tune with the consumer. So Meta just launched its Meta Verified subscription program. This is in the wake of Twitter Blue and Snapchat Plus. What is your opinion on the success of Meta Verified? Let's talk about Meta for a moment. And then do you think that this is just simply a response to Twitter or what Snapchat has done? I mean, I think yeah, it's a little bit of that, right? Uh, they're definitely responding to each other. Um, and they always do that. You see that when Be Real comes out, everybody integrates those features. Same thing with TikTok and everything. But I think there's a lot of validity to it. And I signed up for Twitter Blue. I'm still a Twitter mm-hmm. Blue member. And what I enjoy about it is my tweets make it further up in conversation with people, higher deliverability on direct messages. So for me, engaging with people, it's more valuable from that standpoint. I, I got I had a debate with Chris George on our, our podcast recently about this where we were talking about you know, he sees less value in the blue check mark now because to him it was a status symbol, it was a symbol of prestige. Hmm. And now anybody can get it for $15 a month. To me, I saw it as, this is great. This is going to tell me who all the real people are, not just maybe somebody impersonating a big level CEO I'd love to talk to, but also the fact that they're investing and care about the conversations they're having out there. Yeah, there's probably a lot of businesses listening that are thinking about the world of loyalty and membership. In my opinion, you know, we're probably seeing the death of these free points programs and a lot of these companies moving toward fee for VIP membership or fee for yeah. VIP loyalty. Do you feel like this is the future of loyalty programs in general, that these are all going to become, you know, annual subscriptions, let's say? I don't see. I don't know, because look at what Starbucks has done with their rewards programs. My 12 year old daughters got their first iPhones and they immediately wanted to download the Starbucks app. And once they got into it, because they'll they'll enjoy like the Frappuccinos and stuff like that that aren't, you know, coffee, more sugary treats, the cake pops and things like that. What was amazing to me is I watched them get hooked on the star program. Hmm. They're so excited to earn stars. And they knew when the double star days were. They knew when uh, things were coming down the pipeline of being able to like, you get this drink and you'll get more stars over here and, and stuff like that. And I was like, wow. So from this young age, they gamified this in some ways and they're building loyalty into them. And now these girls want to go to Starbucks all the time. Every time they go to the mall, they want to earn their stars. And so I think there's some value in the free rewards programs too that are building loyalty and, and building this membership in this community. And in the meantime too, they're, they're loading up their Starbucks cards and Starbucks is sitting on their money. Um, at the same time, you know, I think the other argument is that these free points programs have historically had low perceived value, right? People don't really know like there's poor awareness and understanding of the benefits. They don't understand what the point thresholds are. There's long redemption times, right? On the flip side, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, because you are incentivized, because you are paying into Prime, you're going to look on Amazon before you shop the yeah. competition. So having that customer have skin in the game um, from a monetary standpoint seems to be really, really powerful in terms of building that long-term loyalty. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. I, I mean, I can tell you there's, 
I buy things from Uncommon Goods quite frequently because I love the stuff that they put out there. It's mm-hmm. it's Uncommon Goods and it's really cool. And so every year in December, I resubscribe. I join my membership because I get free shipping on their stuff. And I'm more likely to go to look at Uncommon Goods for a specific gift because I have that membership. Things I can't find on Amazon, right? And so now they've built that loyalty me and into me. And it's not like, a, oh, if you spend this much, you get free shipping. It's you're a member, so now I'm invested. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment in terms of, yeah, you got skin in the game. You're gonna you're gonna be more likely to shop there. Do I get a little bit frustrated that I have to pay for that sometimes? But I like them enough that I'm willing to make that investment. Yeah, I mean Peloton has done this so incredibly well. Oh my gosh, their churn is so low. I mean, notwithstanding what's happened with the stock value, and the stock is not the company, the company's not the stock. So that aside, they've done such an incredible job of incentivizing customers to stick around because every Peloton member has invested fifteen hundred or so dollars in this piece of hardware. Yeah. <laughs> so that is going to keep you around uh, a lot longer than if you just had a, a standard bike and then you were subscribing to the Peloton app. The the hardware has driven one thing, but it's the experience that they create. I think that too also keeps them around. For somebody like me, um, you know, like it's a goal in my life. I got to get better at that and I will someday. Don't know when. <laughs> um, but, you know, for them, it's it's become... They enjoy, my wife enjoys the walk in front of the path or my daughters enjoy that somebody else is on the ride with them. So they've done a good job with that. Credit to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, Paul, let's move to the actual business side of things. So if you are a business and you're not currently a subscription business, but you're curious and you want to ask yourself whether or not you can execute a subscription model, what are some of the questions that a founder or operator should be asking themselves if they want to know if their business has subscription potential? I think like any business can have subscription potential, whether it be subscribe and save or building some sort of membership into it or some sort of surprise and delight type approach as well. Uh, I think it really all has to come down to making sure if it makes sense, right? For the economics of your business, is it a product that people are going to want and, and desire and use? Typically, e-com adding subscribe and save is the fastest and easiest way through that. Uh, and it's amazing how far it's come, but you know, not only that, but also how easy it is now. When we first launched Gentleman's Box, we had to hack together a way. Shopify was to a great point, but there weren't as many great plugins on Shopify to help with the recurring revenue side of things. That's changed dramatically now. There's so much like built into the system, but also uh, some great tools and techniques out there. And so that's been really fun. And it's, it's, it's really easy to turn on and test. So I'd say, you know, the, that first metric is understanding, like, the economics of your business doesn't make sense. And then two, like, you know, are the customers going to pay for it and want it? Mm-hmm. What about if you're a services business? So X as a service, do you feel like almost any services business has the potential to be a subscription business? To some extent, yeah. I mean, look at, you know, car washes. You used to just drive through and get your car washed and they would bank on you stopping in whenever you stopped in. Now, most car washes are immediately profitable every single month based on the memberships that they have. Wow, 25 bucks a month, I can wash my car as much as I want versus paying, you know, 5 to $10 every time I go through. That's a no-brainer. Well, yeah, they don't they don't care. They're, like, they're fic- they know what, basically what their costs are going to be. And so I think that's, you know, one way to look at it. There's also... Uh, so many other great service-based businesses out there that 
you're using it with a certain frequency, like an oil change or, you know, other aspects of, of things, yeah, it can absolutely make sense. But again, it has to be, has to be something that, that people are going to want. Mm-hmm. Dating back to the boom, let's call it the big subscription box boom, 2012 through 2016, let's say, you know, Dollar Shave sold to Unilever for a billion dollars. There was a lot of attention flowing into the space, a lot of copycats coming into the world of subscriptions and trying to execute these boxes. Do you feel like we've seen the peak of the subscription box space? I would say we've probably hit the peak in terms of number of different types of subscription boxes out there. Because as with anything, you know, when something new or a new approach is introduced, everybody's going to head out and see what they can do different and better. We had BoxyCharm on our stage in 2016 at the first sub-summit you were at. He was new. He was just getting started. He was going after Ipsy, kind of clipping at their heels for a long time. And then in 20, I think it was 2021, 2022, Ipsy acquired them. And now, just on announcement recently, that BoxyCharm is being more integrated with Ipsy and is going to be a part, like a subscriber level of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of something that, you know, another a brand that kind of headed for the hills of the opportunity saw it, and then there's some consolidation and leveling off that's happening in there. So I do think you'll see, you know, we probably have reached that peak. In terms of revenue potential and number of subscriber potential out there, I think there's still room for growth. It just has to be in the right way. Like a Birchbox, right? Back in back in the day when we had Birchbox at our event, they were they were king of the hill, and you know, and and Katya was one of the most wealthiest women in the world at the time, and had built a great business that quickly changed because they didn't adapt their business model. People mm-hmm. started to get sick of having all the samples around, and so many competitors came out; it wasn't viable for them. But I don't think they shifted quick enough to where the opportunity lie for them. So there's still lots of room and not everything that could be invented has been invented. You know, one of the big things that you guys have done successfully at Subta, I got to say, is is build community. And Mm -hmm. community has certainly become a big theme for companies of all sizes post-pandemic. I think everybody recognizes the importance of community and how it could actually affect a brand's trajectory. So how do you guys think about building community? And if you were to advise another business who is interested in doing the same, are there some best practices here? So at our event, we like to build community in a lot of different ways. It's whether it be helping create those serendipitous interactions. Uh, I remember touring the Zappos headquarters probably a decade ago and learning about they create the one door in, one door out sort of approach. Everybody kind of filters through the same hallway and they create more serendipitous interactions. Tony Shea had shared that at the time. And um, because of that, you get the bump into's and the great conversations that happen from there. So we purposefully design our approach and our flow to help create those more happy interactions. The other way is like we love wherever we can making connections. We explore different ways of software to help do that. And a lot of the questions I typically ask when I talk to people and say, you know, is there anybody you'd like to see there? Is there anybody I can reach out to and talk to that you would love to meet to be at the event and try and help create those those moments? But I think true community happens when brands and people truly care and and really put that out there. And and that's when you build a loyal following and a loyal fan base and create great relationships between a brand and a customer. And that's like 
I always say, you know, we, we started a little bit selfishly with Subsummit because we wanted to meet other people. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we saw what was happening, we're like, this is awesome. We need to do this for everybody. And we continued it. And because that's how we always feel that that comes through in what we, what we do. It's been a great experience. As an attendee of this thing, I gotta say, it's a, it's a great community that you've built. It's a Thank testament you. to, to uh, your ability to execute a conference at scale. It's it's really a great experience, well done. You know, you've had an incredible entrepreneurial career. I gotta say, you've gotten your hands dirty in so many different things, so many different industries. Thank you. It's fun to watch. Thanks so much for, for being on the show today. That's Paul Chambers. And thank you for joining us today on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Adam LaVinter. And we will see you next time on Shopify Masters.